And of course, this old Stark boy knew that he's dead when there uh, bullets they penetrated his skin and his head and bumped him around. And so he dropped the fruit jars and he ran off down into the creek bottom and then got over uh, east of the road somehow or another and walked to town. Fast he'd get there to report Tom, try to get Tom put in jail till he could cool off because he knew Tom was going to follow him if he went home and going to kill him. Well, anyway, uh, Stark went in and told the, the law that he was a. Uh, I think Jim McCoy was deputy sheriff. He told him that, that uh, Tom had just, for, for no cause at all, had shot him. And he wanted to file a complaint against Tom for assault with intent to murder. So he filed it, and of course the law went out in due time, and they arrested Tom and brought him into in the town and put him in jail, and Tom called me and wanted me to represent him. And he told me the story I've just recited here, and I told him, I said, well, Tom, you had an excuse for that, and I'll talk to the district attorney, and I think under the circumstances that he'll reduce it down to a simple assault or or something that you wouldn't have to pay about $15 fine and you can't afford not to do that and get out of it and on a plea of not guilty we'll work out a plea of some kind and if you don't I'll have to charge you $100 at least to represent you in a felony case that they filed on you. Well Tom didn't want to part with that. He thought that they ought, he ought to go a little further and, and he ought to have been given a license to sh- uh, kill old Stark but anyway he agreed to go ahead and, and take this uh, take this trade we made and so in, in order to work it out I, I know Henry Brooks was the district attorney on this deal and since it was a felony case, we had a, 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 an examining trial down in the Justice uh, Peace Court. And uh, the deal was that uh, Henry told me, said, you get Tom to come in here, and, and when we take uh, the evidence on the examining trial to see whether to bind him over to the grand jury, <clears throat> you just get Tom to say that he didn't intend to kill Stark. He just intended to stop him and take his bottles away from him and his jars. Well, Tom said he'd do that, so... Uh, we put him on the witness stand to prove that he didn't have any intent to kill, and that would be the, the gravamen of the offense. And so Tom got to telling about this story that I've just told, and the more he got into it, the matter he got, and he got to waxing eloquent. And he said, and there's old Stark when I come out the door there, he was just about to get away, and said, when I cut down on him and he howled, he said, if the son of a bitch had been ten feet closer, I believe I could have killed him. Well, of course, that undid the intent, that, <laughs> the idea that he didn't intend to kill him. Henry and I both had to laugh, and Henry said, now, Mr. Teague, if you <clears throat> we'll just withdraw that last statement you made, and, and we'll proceed on and keep that off the record. Well, anyway, we had to laugh about it, and they let old Tom pay a $15 fine in that instance, and, and he got off uh, of, of that deal. But I don't think Stark ever bothered him anymore. Then there was another occasion, and uh, Tom and his wife fell out over something, and they had accumulated two or $300 out in this little old house. And uh, they had two children, and I represent the two, two uh, the boy and the girl now. The girl lives in Houston, and the boy lives in, in Elgin, and they still own this piece of property. It's quite valuable now, uh, right across from the, from the fortress uh, out there on, on the uh, Oak Hill Road. But anyway, uh, Tom and his wife fell out, and so uh, Tom uh, uh, got this money. He, had, he never put any money in the bank. He never knew what a bank account was, and I don't know whether he could read and write. But anyway, he had his money hid in a, in a fruit jar. And out in the pasture there somewhere is where he kept it. He had under the bed. But he, when he fell out of his wife, he got a hold of the money. And, and uh, she come in to see my brother Earl and told Earl what the situation was, that they had this money and Tom wouldn't give her her share of it and they was going to separate. And she had Earl to file a suit for divorce and enjoin uh, Tom from spending in this money until the court would have a chance to divide it under the, the community property laws. Well, Tom come in when he got this injunction, uh, a restraining order. Well, he came in to see me to see what to do about it. And I read it, and I told him that, that uh, the court would, uh, when they had the trial, of course, he'd have to fork the money up, and the court would divide it what, according to what he thought was fair. And uh, Tom said, well, I don't have it. He said, uh, I had that money hid out in the, in the pasture, 
in the fruit jar and said, I know that old Stark boy must have washed me. And, and, and uh, he's laying this on the same old Stark boy. He said, he must have washed me go out there and hide it. And, and I think he dug it up and he'd run off with it. And so I said, well, now, Tom, that, that, that story kind of seems a little thin if you haven't gone up and filed a complaint against Stark for stealing your money. He said, now, you better go on up and, and file a complaint against him or if you testify in court that that man went off of your money and you've got it yourself hiding it, the court's going to put you in jail for contempt of court and they might indict you for perjury. Well, he said, uh, that's what happened. I said, all right, we'll go on up. And so we got up to the courthouse, and Jim McCall was sitting in there, the deputy sheriff. He knew these country people better than they knew themselves. And he had his feet up on the desk, leaning back with his hat right on the back of his head. And when we came in, he said, hi, Tom. And uh, I told Tom, I told Jim McCall what the situation was, that Tom wanted to file a complaint for um, this old Stark boy stealing his money. And I didn't tell him about this injunction business, but... Anyway, uh, Jim didn't take his feet down off the desk. He said, well, Tom, have you killed old Stark yet? And uh, Tom said, no, sir. Well, Jim said, then I don't believe he stole your money, because that would been the first thing you'd have done. If you thought he stole your money, you'd have killed him. And said, uh, I'm not going to take a complaint like that. So I got Tom outside in the hall, and I didn't know as well as Jim did. And I said, now, Tom, uh, uh, nobody's going to believe your story. And I said, you better go get that money and bring it back in here and let the court divide it. If you don't, you're going to go to jail, and you're going to lose your money, too. Well, then he finally admitted that he was just trying to lie a little bit, and so he got his money and brought it in, and that way, well, uh, I got a fee out of it. I got about $50, and Earl got 50 or $100 out of it, and, and the rest of it went to Tom and his wife. But uh, then back in the WPA days, Tom had already moved away from his home place, but Homer was still living up there with his, with his daddy. And uh, it became apparent that uh, the old man, Teague, was not in... Uh, and he he didn't love Tom and John too well, and that they weren't going to inherit any part of the family fortunes. And uh, at that time, well, Homer uh, would come to town. He didn't have any means of conveyance, didn't have a horse or anything, but Homer would walk about uh, six or seven miles from the old Teague home up there and bring a dry sack and come down to the Charlie Wolf grocery store, which was on East 5th Street, about two blocks uh, down on East 5th Street from the Austin National Bank, and he'd get groceries, and at the end of the year, well, uh, Wolf would figure up uh, how much uh, Homer owed him, and old man Teague would uh, deed him a piece of land. The Wolf's got some land that way. Charlie and Oswald were brothers, and Charlie was in the, in the grocery business. But uh, during the WPA days, my brother John E. was county commissioner, and he was going to re, uh, redo all the Bee Cave Road all the way out to Bee Cave, and he had a gang of WPA workers that were chopping cedar and cleaning up the road around the, to make widening the Bee Cave Road and had a little machinery out there, and so... Uh, uh, Tom didn't like Homer a bit in the world. They, he, Tom never went up to visit, and, and uh, Homer was, uh, they, they were it out in a big way. As a matter of fact, uh, while John E. was county commissioner, well, Homer came into the commissioner's court one day and told him that uh, he's living out there with his daddy and that uh, he knows it was Tom or John one is laying out there in the brush, and every time he'd come out the door, they'd shoot the shingles off the house trying to kill him so that they could get the ranch from the old, the, the old man. And, and that he, he wanted to get a deputy's, or some kind of deputy's commission from the commissioner's court so that he could go down at the Dixie Cafe or the Dixie Bar there on, on, on uh, Congress Avenue and, uh, between 1st and 2nd Street. And he said, I can catch those two brothers of mine down there on Saturday morning, and if I can get me right to carry a gun, I want to go down there and kill them legally. And he was very serious about it. Well, of course, the commissioner's court didn't give him any uh, license to go down and kill his brothers, but that was the kind of blood that was between Homer and, and, and uh, Tom at that particular time. So... Anyway, Tom was on the WPA committee, I mean, a, a gang. 
he was a he was a good axeman. He was a, he was a cedar chopper, and so he was the one that either sharpened the axes or something like that. And so about once a week, well, old Homer coming to town to get these groceries I was talking about, he'd have to pass by this WPA gang. And uh, uh, every time he'd come by, well, he'd see his brother Tom over there with an axe in his hand, and and uh, Homer got to where he'd carry his axe to town with him along with his tow sack to get groceries in. And my brother said, Johnny said that. Every time Homer would come by, they'd wind around like two old tomcats and, and cuss each other, and then Tom would back off. They didn't strike any licks. There's too many people there to kind of head them off, but they wouldn't have gotten close to the chopping contest. But Homer would go down and get his groceries and come back, and he'd try to make it after five so that he wouldn't have to confront Tom again. But that happened every week for, for a number of weeks. There wasn't any blood spilt, but there's a lot of blood, bad blood between them. And it's hard. Me to understand how folks will remember a weakness and forget the man. Then there was another branch of the Teague family that I was more personally close to and still am, and that is old man Jesse Teague. Now Jesse was a cousin of these others that I've been talking about, and he bought a piece of land for me up where the St. Stephen's Road now turns off the BK Road and had his home there at the time of the war, and he had uh, cut cedar and ran on the place and in my place, and I'd let him have the free run of my land, and actually when I went into the service during the war, I turned my place over to old man Jesse Teague to kind of watch the West End to see that people didn't steal too much from me up there, and so uh, he had uh, several children. One of them was little Jesse, and uh, the old man Jesse had married one of the Plumley girls, and I've known the Plumleys uh, in South Austin most of my life. They were uh, out of the Tucker family there. But anyway, old man Jesse Teague had a little Jesse. I'll talk about him, and then I'll pick up the others as, as, it, as it comes necessary. But Jesse was just ripe for the draft during the uh, Second War. And he, he was picked up uh, about a year or so before I went into the Marines in '44. And Jesse had uh, shipped over to Europe because he's a pretty good shooter to start with, and he didn't take a lot of training to teach him how to shoot a rifle. And so he went over to Europe, and fought the whole time there, and on D-Day, they put him on the first boat going to Asia, and he fought the rest of the war in Asia, and uh, poor little fellow, he didn't, he didn't uh, know where he was uh, any of the time that he was fighting. He didn't know Europe from any other place, and didn't know Asia, and he didn't have any idea what he was fighting for, although he had pretty good grub, but he came home in due time, and after the war, and, and of course, he had battle fatigue, and he was entitled to battle fatigue, if anybody ever was. Well, he decided that he'd better rest up a little bit, so he went back up to uh, his daddy's home there. And uh, the old man lived back, oh, uh, about 200 yards off of the Bee Cave Road. And in the meantime, I had sold a little tract of land there right at the intersection of the St. Stephen's Road and Bee Cave Road to a boy named Harv Roberts. They were cousins to the Teague somehow or another, and Harv was working at the university in some kind of a mechanical job, and he had built in his little house like Tom Teague did. Those people all did their own rock work and built their own homes, and Harvey had built the walls on his house and had a roof on it, but he didn't have any windows and doors in it. That's the last thing that those people always put in. And so Jesse was home from the war, and, and uh, he was a little bored, so he got him a goat, one little Angora goat, and and the goat was his pet, and it had the free run of the community. And, of course, there were no fences up there to keep her goat in, and Jesse didn't try to anyhow. And the goat made a habit of going over to Harvey's house and uh, going in his kitchen and eating everything he could get his uh, mouth hold of. And, and generally when Harvey come home in the afternoon from work, he, the, uh, Jesse's goat would be over on, on his kitchen table. Well, about the second or third time that that happened, well, 
uh, or if I had that, he took a damn view of it. So instead of just running the goat out, he got him a broom and, and hit him three or four times and run him out through the door and run him out all the way over to the Teague fence. And uh, uh, Jesse was kind of getting his uh, dander up by the time the goat got over to the fence and run through the hole and back in. And, and Jesse says to Harvey that he didn't appreciate him beating on his goat that way. And Harvey said, well, Jesse, you keep your goat at home. He's over here in my kitchen table and, and, and eats everything I've got up, and I just don't want that to go on. Well, he said, Harvey, I don't see no harm in my goat being over on your kitchen table, and I don't want you beating on him no more. Well, uh, Jesse knew that didn't stop it, so he he let his goat out the next morning. Of course, he, he didn't thin him up anyhow. And then all that, that day, he, he laid out on the back porch there where he could face Harvey's house, and he had his rifle out there with him, and... Sure enough, Harvey come home that evening, just about 30 minutes before dark, had his car, he had a little old car of some kind, and, and Harvey went in the house, and there was Jesse's goat on his kitchen table. So Harvey hit him with a broom again and tore it out the, the door, and then old Jesse took a pot shot at him from over his rifle, and he, he didn't hit him, or he could, if he didn't aim at him, he just shot at him and, and put a hole through the door, but he put a bullet through the door, and well, Harvey knew that it's time to hide, and, so he laid down, he didn't show his head through the window of the door until it got dark, and he didn't dare turn the lights on of his car because he figured that old Jesse would shoot his car if he'd do that. So what he did, when it got dark, Harv just got out on the BK Road and, and walked to town. And I was living on Newton Street then, uh, whatever time it was. I think I was living on, no, no, I wasn't living on Newton. I was living there next to Mama on East Live Oak. So Harvey come in there at about 9 o'clock at night and told me what had happened. And... Uh, he won't know what he what, what he could do about it. Well, I said, Harvey, you got your kin to him. I said, you know him better than I do. I said, now, you don't have a lot of choice, but I said, now, you can go back out there, and I believe if you uh, work it just right, you can catch old Jesse when he's not looking, and you can probably kill him if you get the first shot at him. But I said, now, of course, you know that that uh, old man Teague, he likes little Jesse. He's uh, He's been off to the war, and he's been a hero so far as the family's concerned, and, and uh, old man will... He he won't like that very well, and you're going to have to kill him. You know that for sure. And then, of course, his mother, she loves little Jesse, and you you have to kill her. And then I said, how many brothers and sisters is is he got? Jesse got this. I know it's Raymond and his Bert and, and uh, two or three sisters. And I said, all of them are pretty good shots. Now uh, you know as well as I know, Harvey, that you're going to have to kill every one of them. Yeah, uh, or you can do this. You can either do that, or you can just pick up and leave. And Harvey left. He went back out and got his clothes, and he, he didn't go back out there, I don't believe, as long as Jesse lived. Well, little Jesse uh, uh, didn't live too long. <laughs> Jesse became a wino then. He moved down to town, and he would uh, lay up with the winos down on the, on the West First Street there where the, uh, the uh, fire tower is now, and, and uh, they'd gather there under the Congress Avenue Bridge at night and drink with each other and tell tales. And, and one night, well, an old boy was down there with them, and... and uh, he wound up dead the next morning up on 3rd Street there and, and about Colorado Street. He's, uh, he's uh, where the railroad tracks are. The policeman found him there, and he's one of these winos, and he'd been hit on the head with something, and it cracked his skull, and he'd taken pneumonia and, and died during the night. And so they made a run down there to pick up the winos. They'd all be suspicious of the one that did the, did the hitting, and Jesse happened to be sleeping it off, and they ran and him up and took him up and put him in jail. He got word to his daddy somehow or another that he was in jail, and and uh, so the old man comes to see me. He wanted me to go get little Jesse out. So I went up, and I told Jesse what they'd cured him of. That he had, uh, somebody hit this old boy in the head. They figured with a wine bottle and broke his skull. And they had died of pneumonia. And they figured that uh, Jesse was probably the one that did it. And I said, uh, uh, do you remember what you did? 
Well, he said, no, I don't. I don't, but I'll tell you, if that somebody hit me, I'd damn sure hit him back. And that's the defense we had. Well, the district attorney at that time was old Bob Long, and he wanted to put little Jesse away. Jesse had uh, been yeah, causing him a little trouble, and he wasn't a very valuable citizen at that particular point in his life. And So Bob decided he'd going to try him and send him to penitentiary if he could. Well, I asked for a suspended sentence and everything else I'd get for. Well, he went to trial, and that was the defense we had. And uh, old Bob couldn't prove who hit the old boy and killed him, so we won the case. Jesse didn't, didn't have to go to jail on, on that occasion. And it's hard for me to understand How folks will remember a witness and forget the man But it seems that folks just don't recall about John Somebody liked to drink and chew Yes, it seems that folks just don't recall about John Somebody liked to drink and chew 